we go to work and when we're Welcome to Whining with Nurses. I said that by myself today because I'm the only nurse here, but fortunately I have a guest and it's my neighbor, Susan. Hey. (laughs) Um, Kat's not feeling well, Jen's working, so uh, Susan and I are going to continue the talk tonight about death and, uh, you know, things preceding death and maybe some things that come after death. Or before. True. True. Many things happen before. They do. So it's probably a good idea to talk about that too. I just want to go suddenly and painlessly. Well, that's probably a good thing. I think most people want that. How often do you think that happens? Uh, I think it's happening more. Really? More and more, yeah. And they did a big, uh, there's a very large study done uh, by California Healthcare Foundation. And they found over 80% of the folks that they uh, surveyed wanted to die at home. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be a burden on their families. And this is a real shift from when hospitals were developed to fix everything, right? Right. And it's now people realize, hey, why do I want to be here? I want to go have a martini, have my ice cream. I don't need to be laid up here at the hospital. Yeah, martinis and ice cream. Yeah, that sounds way better than being in the hospital. Well, before we get into all that, let's open some wine. Um, I have this uh, wine called Dearly Beloved Forever Red, and it says Back to the Very Earth. I just thought that was fitting for the theme, um, and uh, it's just a blend from somewhere in Healdsburg. So let's open it. And Susan, why don't you tell us who you are and what you do and how, you know, yeah, that, that stuff. Well, I'm not a nurse, but I am a doctor, so I'm second best. I love nurses. (laughs) Um, They make the world go round in medicine, and they're the ones who really take care of the patients. We like Um, doctors, too. They're all right. Yeah, we're okay sometimes, (laughs) but... um, They do some important things. Yeah, so sometimes. (laughs) Um, I initially worked in emergency medicine at a big trauma center, Okay. And I did that for many, many years. And then one day I decided I saw too much stuff going down I didn't like. And I saw too many people suffering. And I joined a new, newer specialty back then that was called palliative care. Okay. And so what I do now is I'm a palliative care doctor. I do some of the other stuff too. But I'm a palliative care doctor and a lot of people have no idea what it is, or they have a misconception about what it is. I think that's definitely true. We talked about that a little bit last week, how people think that if you accept palliative care, that uh, that means that you're dying, you know, or that the the healthcare team is kind of given up on you. They're not going to try to save your life or, or do things to, to treat you anymore. But that's not true always, right? Right. Think about the term, the medical term, palliative. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Does palliate mean to like relieve or remedy or something? Or Very good. It's relieving suffering. Yay. That's what it means, to relieve suffering. And so... By placing a pillow over your face, go to sleep forever. 
Well, well no, I guess maybe. <laughs> it depends. Um, but I think you think about if you are in pain and you couldn't do all the things you like to do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or if you're always nauseated and running to the bathroom throwing up, or you couldn't even leave the house on a nice day, that's not a good quality of life. So palliative care is really about improving your quality of life every day. And it's not the same thing as end of life, but I guess it's kind of, it is related. It's a, it's a long range kind of thing. It's palliative care teams come in very early when done right, and they help people meet their goals. And it could be some of these people may be getting cancer treatment or a heart transplant, and they help them with you know the breathing, feeling better so they can go out to dinner or play with their grandkids or get married, or they help with pain. And so if you're always in a lot of pain or feeling bad, you're not going to have quality of life. That just is common sense. It's like anybody who's even had a flu or a cold, it's miserable. That's for sure. Yeah. And if you have something more... Yeah, more serious or more chronic. You just named a couple of things that, you know, not being able to go outside on a nice day, that would be devastating for me. Me too. We're in California, man. Mm-hmm. And the having to run to the bathroom to throw up or being nauseous, that that's Kat's biggest fear. Kat's the yeah. not here tonight. The nurse who's not here tonight. That's one of her biggest fears is being nauseous and throwing up. She absolutely and it, despises it. And the funny thing about it, not funny like ha-ha, but the, the interesting thing is it's one of the easiest things to treat. We have all the tools to do that very easily. Mm-hmm. And Oh, nausea? Nausea, a lot of these different symptoms. And I think the issue is that palliative care physicians and nurses, uh, we understand... I'm looking at your cat who is so cute. She likes to be a part of the podcast. She She makes occasional appearances. She is a diva. (laughs) She's gorgeous. Um, So I forgot what I was saying because she mystified me. You're talking about a lot of the doctors and nurses. On the palliative care team, it's it's not just a doctor, like their traditional thing. It's, It's a real team with different skill sets for each person, right? So I work with nurses, uh, nurse practitioners, social workers, um, chaplains, and we work together as a team to help the person and their loved ones kind of wander through life in a good way, Mm -hmm. no matter what their illness is. You shouldn't be defined by an illness, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you're not cancer. You just have, happen to have a diagnosis of cancer and it shouldn't take you over of all your being. True that. But I do have a question for you. So you talked about, you said palliative care is not exactly end of life care. And so this week I started a new job and during part of my orientation, a social worker from the... Um, She's actually on the palliative care team in the cancer center specifically there. And um, she mentioned that there's a difference between that and end of life care and comfort care and hospice care. And I didn't realize that they're all different. Do they, you know, mesh I, or how, how what you know, would you that's, say? That's a really good uh, question because they do intermesh. But let me try to do a better job instead of 
making misstatements. <laughs> um, palliative care is initially it was conceived uh, for patients who are really at the end of life. When someone is in their last six to 12 months of life, they go to a service called hospice care. Hospice care is a special, uh, it's a special um, benefit, a health benefit for everybody with Medicare and certain insurance plans that, I don't know, my computer's it's haunted singing. by a ghost. <laughs> or Maki so, stepped on yeah. something. <laughs> so hospice is really when you're in that last six months to a year of life and they will take care of you at home. Um, they are an amazing group of people. And if I was in a situation where, let's say, I got sick and I had bad heart or cancer and I'd gone through treatment and there it was looking not so good, I would want to be on hospice care. They'd come and help you be at home with your family, your friends, uh, really meeting your goals. Is that so a requirement of hospice care that you have to have a doctor say you probably have six to 12 months yes. left to live? So and if you're just you know in really bad shape, but you could live for a couple of years, you can't really be on hospice, right? Not really, okay. not really. And so the question's kind of vague. They ask the, the surprise question is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And you can certify a patient if, in your opinion, if the patient's illness progressed without treatment, do you think the patient would die in six months? But I can tell you from years and years of working in this area that many patients live beyond hospice. And they're actually, I hate to keep bringing up studies, but there was a big study in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed people who had palliative care, Mm -hmm. um, they lived longer. And so that happens with people with hospice, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it. If you go to hospice, um, you're not going into the hospital. If you have a crisis, there's a 24-hour person to contact. A nurse will come to your house. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be in the middle of the night. So first of all, you're not getting exposed to all the, and here's a real medical term, cooties in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, there's so many cooties in the hospital. Yeah, you're not getting poked and prodded with different procedures that we do that all carry <laughs> a risk. That's the worst. And you're comfortable, you're in your own setting. They may bring in a hospital bed or whatever you need and you have medications at home to ensure your comfort. And so if you're not suffering in your you know, you got to think your whole immune system, your whole body's fighting, 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 and you can just chill and be at home and be comfortable, Mm -hmm. you might live longer. Right. And that's what we see with hospice. And so the surprise question is kind of vague because, you know, let's face it, we're not God. I can't look at somebody like a crystal ball and say, hey, you've got 5.25 months to live. I did it with my powers. Yeah. <laughs> I predicted how long you had Yowza. to live. Yeah, <laughs> I knew you were a psychic. You can only predict that if you're right about to murder somebody. This is true, and that is why I make sure I watch 48 hours and <laughs> making of a murder, whatever I can get my hands on, so I can learn to be a better predictor. <laughs> I can see that you're about to kill me. (laughs) I predict that I have 30 seconds to live. (laughs) Yeah, so that's hospice, and it's a great service, and it's been around forever. Um, 
then palliative care is kind of, I don't want to call it pre-hospice, but I will just so people understand. And it used to be that, and it still is, some people come in and they don't want to give up on any treatment. And often we know, we know what the deal is. You've been on a bunch of chemo and you're still getting worse or your heart is, your heart muscle's so dead, it's not coming back Mm -hmm. or whatever the situation. Some people have a hard time coming to terms with that. You know, I'm not here to judge them. So we're here to support them. So for those people who don't want to go to hospice, palliative care helps them. Mm-hmm. And we do that either in the hospital, at home, um, at nursing facilities. And it's more directed towards working with the patient and their family, whatever their family is. It could be friends on developing a care plan. And what that means is you come in, we get to know each other. We have more than 15 minutes with you, which is really a luxury. That is a luxury in healthcare. Yeah. I get to know all about my patients, where they were born, what they like to do, craziest moments in their life. That's it's why like I love you're their friend. I love it. So we see them and then it's good because we get to know each other and we know the do's, the don'ts, the likes, dislikes. Mm-hmm. And we work with them for whatever it is. I've had patients. I had a young man, and his big dream was he had uh, melanoma, and he wanted to go find the vortex in Sedona. So my job... Wait, what is that? There's some part in Sedona. I, I don't know if there's any vortex experts out there. Please let us know. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Just, it's what something is a vortex mis- even? It's mystical. It's something <laughs> mystical in Sedona and underground energy. That sounds cool. I think so. But who wouldn't want to go to Sedona? And he wanted to go there. And everybody was like, oh, no, no, no. And while I'm here, let me just get a massage. Right. (laughs) So people have things they want to do. And so we're there to make sure that their lives every day are meaningful. And we're respecting their wishes. And we're not being paternalistic and making decisions from them. You know, I I think so many people, um, and I think it's changing now, but... The first thing I tell my patients is, you're in charge. I work for you. Mm-hmm. You don't work for me. And so you need to tell me if things aren't working or what's important to you when we're working together to make you more comfortable. The other part is a lot of the relationship stuff that comes up. Uh, you've been married to somebody, you live with them, and now they're sick, and you're taking care of them. Maybe you're trying to work, and you're getting kind of tired. Mm-hmm. And that we know those people who do that suffer from ill health. So we the need caregivers. To get, yes, <laughs> caregivers need a lot of love. They need a lot of practical support, resources in the community, getting friends like who's going to bring food and what if I want to go out and get my hair done or go see a friend for lunch? Is that possible? So that's where we have. Do I have my own life anymore at all? Even just a little bit? Yeah, you have (laughs) to have your own life. Mm -hmm. And you're going through so much drama. So that's part of palliative care too. And then we do a lot of, um, you know, oddly enough, depression is not a normal thing when you're sick. Mm -hmm. And when it's present, actual major depression, that's not a good thing. Because then That's interesting. It's not a normal thing when you're sick? Nope. You can have... uh, reaction, but most people... You're talking about clinical depression is actually not very common. 
It's common, but, but it has to be treated. Mm-hmm. And people who are clinically depressed have worse outcomes. So really we take it really seriously and we try to provide, we, that's why we have social work, behavioral health, um, if, we, if they need medication to help them cope because part of that um, effect, their willingness to go on has to do with their mood mm-hmm. and their values. And then we also have spiritual counseling because people have different relationships and spirituality is not religion. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. It's totally not, but that's a major part. It could part. be if, if that's what it is for you, but it's yeah. not. Yeah, for I me, think, it wouldn't be. Yeah, but I think you know we have people that are devoutly Catholic and Christian and they need that support. We have people who are Buddhist, Muslim, people who are atheists and their spirituality comes from being at the beach or floating down a river. So you just don't hey, know. Hey, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so I think, <laughs> I guess a point I want to make is palliative care is while you're going through being sick. Uh, I've worked places where people had transplants and got cured and we helped them through that. And then sadly, I've had people who didn't do so well, but I knew by us helping them and transitioning them to hospice um, providers, I know they had a good end to their life. And what else can you ask for? I want a lemon drop martini going in my (laughs) IV, please. Val, did you hear that? Lemon drop martini. (laughs) Maybe some chocolate. (laughs) That's a good way to end it all really quickly. Just vodka to the IV. (laughs) Yeah, why not? We do it all the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting you were talking about um, with palliative care, how, you know, a lot of times people haven't really accepted that aggressive treatments aren't likely to be effective yet. Ryan and I were just going over advanced directives because I have serious, we, we talked about advanced directives last week and I really, really wanted to do one. So um, anyway, one of the questions says, if others, oh, if I faced a life or death situation tomorrow and was not able to speak for myself, the type of medical intervention I would want is, and the options are comfort treatment, elective treatment, and no limits. And under no limits, it says I want to be treated in any possible way to prolong my life, even if the chance of success is slim and my quality of life would be diminished. And Ryan just seemed really surprised at that. But for me, because I you know, see that sometimes, I'm like, no, sometimes people want all the stops pulled out because that's just what they want. And you, you have to respect that. And like you said, we're not here to judge. Even if you see a different outcome than what they're probably predicting for themselves. Um, yeah, sometimes people still want that. Yeah, and I think it's some. my niece is a ICU nurse mm-hmm. back east and she really has, she's only, you know, she's kind of a baby nurse. It's only been a couple of years mm-hmm. and she calls me all the time with these situations where she can't understand why this patient's in the ICU. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Now, I think when you're making these decisions, um, let's say you're in a situation where you were unconscious, you got in an accident or something happened and you had been healthy. Well, I don't know about you, but I would want full treatment because that's where a lot of the critical care is based on. Somebody who's just tripping along and boom, something happens. They actually trip real bad. Yeah. (laughs) They hit their head. Kaboom. (laughs) Lights out. Good night, Irene. Um, But then you start getting to this group of individuals 
that have really bad chronic illness, but they've managed to teeter on for a long time. And um, they keep going because they have points in their life that are good. It could just be a dog, if you're like me, a corgi. (laughs) Sorry, Merlin, my other dog's not a corgi. I'm so bad. (laughs) But it could be something, an animal, watching TV is all they need. And it's hard for, uh, you know, we have to be careful not to place our values. When I was a younger doctor, I did a lot of that value placing. Like, I don't get it. But the older you get, and I'm pretty old now, um, can you That's get my wheelchair walker out, please, Sarah? Yeah, right. No, but I think you start seeing the, you know, people grapple with these decisions. And that I think the best thing is when you think about these interventions of, you know, life support, thinking about number one, risk benefit. Number two, how likely am I going to be able to tolerate that? Number three, do I want treatment for a day, then stop if I don't get better? Does it have to be all or none? And these are things that you can work out with your, uh, having a good discussion with your family. It's hard to go to a doctor and have this, you need to really talk to your loved ones because they're going to be talking for you most likely. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to stick that on other people. I often will have people like, oh, my son will take care of this. And I feel bad for that son. (laughs) I just feel bad. You know, hey, you want to pull the plug on mama? (laughs) It's like, you don't want to be in that situation. So I don't think it's all or none. And I think you have to look at people's life values, religious preferences before you guide them. And in my mind, when I meet with people, I want them to know the reality of what it means to be on a ventilator Uh, the reality of what it means to get chest compressions where we break your ribs. Um, Those are the things that scare me the most. We we are going through these questions and there are questions that came up about, would you want to be on a ventilator? Would you want to be on CPR? And in my mind, I accept that if I'm out in the world and something happens to me, I'm getting CPR unless I have a pulse attached to my forehead, which nobody does unless you're home and you have one. I don't have one. Um, So You're too young. and the pulse, yeah, the well, not really. The pulsed form is intended for people in the last couple of years of their life. Okay, which at this age I wouldn't predict. No. But so no. you never know. But anyway, Only if you I, go rafting in Costa Rica right now, <laughs> oh, I oh know, my god, that's awful. That's so awful. There was a raft guide who drowned in Costa Rica. Um, so that's really sad. Yeah, um, sorry hope, about that. Yeah, I kept, no. so now he would not want CPR. Probably not. I'd, I wouldn't if something like that happened to me, but I accept that I would get CPR because that's what emergency responders do, you know, and unless unless they show up to a house where there's a, a pulse. Uh, wait, do you know what pulse stands for? Physicians order for life-sustaining treatment. Okay, and that's what outlines you can have a DNR or a DNI. It's a different than your... Everybody should do an advanced directive Mm because it's more detailed and I had to fill one out once Mm -hmm. and my husband was looking at me like I had lost my marbles because I was planning a party after I passed and I knew I was like these are the songs I want placed and I want you this is a food so you can get into that's not on my questionnaire do you just (laughs) write it all in the extra section yeah you can get really but you can really talk about what you want please book railroad earth for my uh, memorial yeah (laughs) Um, so you can get 
very detailed or not, an advanced care plan, uh, that, that form's important. The POLST form is really uh, a physician's order form, like an order form when you're in the hospital for when they write for antibiotics mm-hmm. or medications. And the idea of it is, let's say you're with one uh, health plan, you get bumped over to the other place and they don't have your records. Mm-hmm. But you have oh, that... like br- you usually are see, treated at Kaiser, but then something happens to you away from a Kaiser and, and you, you go end to up some, at Sutter or yeah. Memorial. Okay. And then all of a sudden, they don't have your records, but you have that bright pink pulsed form, mm-hmm. right? Or if you're coming in from a nursing home or whatever, they have that form and that form is the doctor's order form and that's there's just a f- three questions on it really about what you want done. Do you want a natural death or do you want CPR? Mm-hmm. Um, and it talks about if you want to be put on a breathing tube. And uh, the third part is more about you know nutrition. But really the critical part is that first question. Mm-hmm. And it asks about, do you want cardiac resuscitation? And since I am, my history is critical care and emergency medicine, you don't do... You don't put people on a ventilator without doing chest compressions if their heart has stopped. And this is, it's a lot of confusion about this. Right. You can't just skip that part, go no. to the ventilator and no. save someone. Like that's not no. how it works. And the first question is really about if you are in cardiac arrest or dead uh, and they're trying to bring you back. The rest of it is a little more finessed. But that order form was developed just for that reason. Okay. Because it would be really dumb, right? Oh, wow, ma'am, we got your patient at another hospital and then I did all this stuff because I didn't have a form. Yeah, and they didn't want any of that stuff. And then, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of battery. When you, I think there was, I can't remember, but I think there was a case of battery because somebody did get treated against their wishes. And I don't think it's just one time. Really? And it's kind of confusing because then it goes the other way. If you don't treat someone right, and they right. wanted it, that's, yeah. you know, uh, malpractice, People get I guess, a little, right? Or, yeah. Kind of crazy. It is crazy. Um, but yeah, I think that if something happened to me out in the world uh, and someone administered CPR, that's, I can't blame them. They're just doing their job. But if I was in the hospital with an injury or an illness of some sort, and then I went into cardiac arrest, I definitely would not want CPR. Then I know I would say No. Um, and no ventilator. I know it's, 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 uh, I don't know. It's very personal. I just, it is personal. I don't think I could tolerate that amount of suffering even for a short time. And you're also a nurse, right? Mm -hmm. So you know the real deal, but most people in the world who are not in medicine and not, have not been privy to what happens when somebody codes, don't know the reality and that's why it's so important to talk to people when I have these discussions which is every day because the regular doctors don't seem to want to do it I don't start with that but what I do is talk about what their goals are what it would mean to them if they could no longer use their brain what it would mean to them if they were unable to ever get out of their bed Mm-hmm. And that's where I think... That's a good question. I think that's how this discussion should be thought of. What would it mean to you? And this is kind of depressing. But what would it mean to you if you were uh, unable to communicate? You had no awareness. You were just a beating heart in a bed. 
Or what if you had no. awareness, but you weren't able to communicate at all in any meaningful way? And some people would, very few want that. To be oh. quite honest, most people want, I have to say 90% of the people I've seen want a natural death. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't think many people, and there's a few people, yes, and I always curious about it, but I just, I, you have to respect their wishes. And then typically what happens is when you have somebody that's just lingering, then palliative care gets called at the hospital, maybe an ethics consult, and it becomes a drawn out procedure. But really, if I think if someone's not really making big progress after dropping and coding within the first 72 hours, mm-hmm. you need to really think about what you're doing. Agreed. Yeah. It's um, hard. It gets frustrating for a lot of healthcare providers um, because we're, you know, there's different views. I find a lot of nurses are so compassionate like me and we don't want to hurt people. <laughs> and then you have people that just want to jump in and do everything. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's important for us to communicate with each other and really understand what this person is about. And I think we lose that a lot of the times in medicine, in acute situations like this. I agree because it's, you know, you operate under the assumption that you have to do everything to to save this person, to restore them to the, you know, uh, quality of life that they want. Even if you, you know, don't think you can actually do it, um, you should just try because that's what they would want or that's what their family wants. Um, and I think it's interesting you brought up the ethics committee because I think that's really important and something probably a lot of people don't even realize that hospitals have ethics committees. Um, and, you know, it's my understanding that they're there to consider the different things like what we're talking about, you know, what what are we actually trying to achieve here if, if you know, we know based on what we've observed in this patient that this is the likely outcome that we're going to have or this outcome is extremely unlikely. Um, also, just other considerations like cost to the hospital um, um, and things like that. Uh, or also like if you have someone who's abusing drugs or alcohol and they come in for a certain procedure that helps to remedy an organ that they've damaged because of that. And if they've had that more than one time, multiple times, you know, should we really do this again? And I think those are some things that ethics committees consider, right? Sometimes, I mean, um, usually the ethics committee gets involved when there's a real stalemate or there's issues of consent, um, I've sat on ethics committees. And so sometimes we hope that the palliative care or the medical team without palliative care can reach some kind of, uh, you know, midpoint with the family or the patient by good communication. Um, But it is good to get your, if you're really struggling and there's issues of consent where people cannot consent because they're not able to, that's where they come in. Okay. And legal issues of who is this person's, um, you know, who can sign consents for this person, who can speak for them. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 
Going back to something we were talking about earlier. So now you're talking about palliative care and how sometimes that can be before hospice, but it could also be if you're not expected to die at all, right? And anytime in the past, in the next six or 12 months. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've taken care of people who were just diagnosed uh, with cancer I worked with them and controlled their symptoms to get them through treatment. Uh, we did a lot of work. Some of them had very young children. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met with the kids, helped them communicate with the kids. We dealt with all the what ifs. It's helped to explain to the kids what's yes. going on exactly. And, and find age appropriate ways for children to cope. I didn't know that was a function of, of palliative care. Yeah. That's um, cool. And we're very fortunate because some of the hospices, even if a patient's not involved, some of the pediatric hospices do have counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but part of my job, because I do adult MPs, is understanding and helping parents and children. You know, kids are funny. They cope in such a different way. They cope by playing, mm-hmm. right? I guess. Um, I don't actually know too much about kids. Yeah, to be so they, they cope a little bit. <laughs> I'm talking about children of someone who's sick. Uh-huh. Um, but I've also taken care of a lot of children who are terminally ill. And um, they're very resilient, but the, the impact on the family is just intense and it can break relationships apart. Um, it's important to have people around. That's why we have social workers, child life, who can help these kids cope in the way they know how to. Mm -hmm. Some people look at children playing and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe he's playing. And I'm like, He's so cold. What an insensitive child. Yes, but that's how he (laughs) deals. That's his environment. That's interesting. I didn't realize that that's how children cope, but it makes sense because if that's, I mean, that's pretty much what they know. But we all know adolescents are rotten to the core. I was a rotten one. Same, me too. I was bad. Sorry, mom. Angry. <laughs> Not Angry sorry rebel. to you, dad. You deserved every bit of the torment that I gave you. <laughs> <laughs> torment. But you know what? That makes sense because sometimes adults play to cope too, if you consider what we do to play, yeah. which is like drinking or Hell yeah. you know, running, outdoor activities. So I guess getting that's... a massage. Oh yeah. Going to the movies. Mm-hmm. Eating too much chocolate. Those are mostly healthy coping mechanisms, except for the drinking that I mentioned. Although if you if you do bit. it right, look at the French. It's fine. Look at the French. <laughs> <laughs> They've got it right. Yes, what they do, you... do. Except they're stinky little cigarettes. <laughs> no, no. Uh, what do you think about the wine? Are you smelling, tasting anything in particular? Oh. It's very good. <laughs> it's. I, I think it tastes kind of like a Zinfandel. I don't know what it the blend is. is Zinf- but it does. It's a little sweeter. Mm-hmm. It's not heavy like a cab. And it tastes like a little bit of chocolate in the like the aftertaste. I wasn't sure chocolatey. if it was me or if I was just having craving for chocolate, but I would agree. <laughs> we it's have peanut M and M's. That's all I can offer. It's okay. In terms I don't of chocolate need it in this house. I don't need the letdown. <laughs> the sugar letdown is deep. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Um, So you said you did emergency medicine before. Oh, yeah. How long ago was that that you decided to switch to palliative care? Let me think back. Let me get the crank out. (laughs) Go year by year (laughs) back. Uh, I think it was around, I think I, I want to say around 2008. 
eight, I was given a position to run the first palliative care program, which I developed in all the public hospitals in California. Wow, really? Yeah, and then I started an initiative with California Healthcare Foundation. And then uh, we started with a few million dollars and now there's tons of programs, regardless of your ability to pay. Wow. I was a county girl before I came into the private world. <laughs> I really miss it. You were doing a public service. I love that. More every than second. what you're already doing. <laughs> I loved it. That's so, really cool. But like, how did you make that transition? Did you have to do extra um, it was coursework? Or? Okay, you have to know that, I mean, I was Miss Badass Girl. I was, you know, I was. You're taking on the world. Toot, man. <laughs> Chief resident at NYU at Bellevue in the county. Give me that chest, I'll crack it open. You're like the lady on, um, oh, is it Scrubs? No, not Scrubs. What's the other one? Oh, um, not ER. No, not ER, I know. But like, uh, what's the show? Grey's Anatomy. The the chief of staff in the ER, I know you're, you know, then she's really short, but like she's got a, you know, big <laughs> attitude. That's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, I, this, this woman did an article on me once many years ago and she kind of painted me as Martha Stewart with an attitude or Betty Crocker with an attitude or something. Really? Yes. Martha Stewart or Betty Crocker? I can't remember. I never so smell your cooking over there. <laughs> I think what it was is she was really stricken by the fact that I wasn't, go this is how women are. Like when women are together working in the ER, no matter how crazy it is, Everybody's in the right spot. We're not screaming and yelling. It's pretty chill. Mm -hmm. You're right? saying women kind of work to, well together. They communicate yeah. and there's not as much. We don't have the testosterone, which I guess can be a problem. Sorry, Sorry guys. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, I was working. I was working in the ER. Um, I had been in Denver for a little while, um, and then I came to. Los Angeles and worked in the biggest trauma center anywhere. And I loved it. But I have to tell you, I think, I can't remember when it was, but I just started noticing a pattern of these young Latina women coming in. And a lot of them had very aggressive cancers. Mm -hmm. And then there was a woman who had a really bad cancer and she was pregnant and about to deliver. And those cases just hit me that why are they in the hospital right now? Mm -hmm. Why can't they be with the baby? Why can't we do more to help them? I see what you're saying. And it okay. just, after a while, I started noticing all of a sudden I couldn't do a procedure, an IV without numbing up everything. Um, an IV? Oh my God. I would love that if you numbed so, me before giving me yeah, an IV. I, it changed me. And then uh, I had my own personal health struggles. And then I said, I have to find a better way to be a doctor. Because I went in this, I was the freak in the crowd. I went in it because I wanted to help people. Why? Freaky. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Most people in my class went into surgery. Um, so I didn't feel like I was meeting, it wasn't where my heart was. It did not make my heart sing after a while. It was really important. And there are many things I love about it. And I'm probably going to go back and do a little bit of shifts in the ED, but I'm doing full-time palliative. And I think it's just, 
I love the fact now that I get to know my patients. I get to spend time with them and really understand them. That's where it's at, right? Like yeah. really getting to but spend when some y- time with your patients, which is hard to do. When it's you're rare. a young whippersnapper, heck yeah. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm an old fart, <laughs> I'm an old lady now, I get to, I've changed. I think we all changed. I mean, look at Madonna. Mm-hmm. She's changed many times. She's she reinvented herself. She changes every five minutes. I, I but agree. She can so still why do can't splits. Wait. I know. In fact, I think she can do splits better than she could when she was in her twenties. I don't know it's if I ever saw a split in her twenties. No, she had that tight little out, you know, bustier on oh, all the booty? time. Yeah, she had a tight little booty. Yeah. So I think that <laughs> your values change, your preferences change, and so you just find yourself where you need to be. I think that's how this all happened to me. So I think around it's around 2008, I walked away from doing shifts in the ER, like the real ER. Mm-hmm. Where trauma and craziness happens. Yeah, and all of a sudden it was like, you know, you're trained to save that one person who happens to get hit by a stray bullet. And the people that I was seeing, they were not, they were the ones with the guns shooting each other. And I put more bodies in body bags. And I remember one Mother's Day, there were seven teens that I had to talk to the mothers in the oh morning. Oh my God, Mother's seven? Day. On Mother's Day. It was they a street all died? Fight. Yeah. Oh my God. They were fighting with each other and they all Gun. died? It was a gang thing. That's horrible. Yeah, so I just felt like the love is gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's still a lot of other great things, but... The trauma was so exciting when I was young. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm not into this anymore. Yeah. I need to find meaning somewhere else. I can see that. I mean, and when you're seeing things like that all the time, it's easy to get down about it and burnt out a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I think now it's even harder to make any kind of social change, which is kind of where my brain's always at. So, Mm -hmm. anyways, I love palliative care. I can tell. It's really cool. And um, I have an interest in it, but I feel like um, I'm not there yet. I'm obsessed with cardiology, but that's somewhere where I feel like I can see myself but I, in, in years from now if I don't go into wound care that first. Is a, <laughs> I love wounds. Just I know I'm weird. You know, you're saying that not yet, but what I'm hearing and what I am happy to hear, because by the way, you're so awesome. Um, oh, thank you. I know. She's perfection <laughs> magnified. <laughs> she's um, got the whole platter. Can you come on next week too? Yes. <laughs> what should we talk about next week? How perfect Your good I dental know. hygiene. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the good dental hygiene of my cat. <laughs> Oh, you probably, I don't, I don't think we're, um, we follow each other on Instagram. Yeah, Maki lets me brush her teeth. I brush a dog's teeth every night. Do you? You have a cat that lets you brush the teeth. She, That's in impressive. fact, insists on it. If I'm brushing my teeth, she asks that I brush her teeth. She sits on the sink until I do. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she's Maki. sassy. She's uh, so perfect. Look at her. Uh, one of our other neighbors, Gary, who's a dentist. I'm saying that for our listeners. You know who Gary is. Um, he was impressed with the brushing, but he says it'll be really good if I can get her to floss. So that's the next flossing. That sounds like well, we'll have to floss for. I don't her. know. She it sounds like thumbs. fifty. La- it sounds like fifty lacerations to the face to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, There's she, a limit to love, honey. <laughs> she just wants to be human. I'm pretty sure she kind of is. Yeah, she's in the middle of the combo here. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. She hasn't lashed out at me for saying anything stupid yet, so that's good. She's very I'm kind afraid in though. that way. She's non-judgmental. She is. <laughs> it's amazing. And I just want to make a plug for animal therapy. Go for it. I think every place should have visiting animals because I have seen some of the most beautiful things at hospitals with animals. Oh my gosh. You know what the best thing is? It just brings your blood pressure down. Anytime people come through with a therapy dog and it's, Mm -hmm. you know, they're there to visit the patients, but But the nurses- But why not a therapy cat? I know. She might be okay. I think she would. She only will bite if you try to pet her stomach. She just doesn't like her stomach pet and she bites not very hard when you do that. My dog does not like his stomach pet either, so- I think uh, she'd be great. I could see her in a white coat. My mom has a chocolate lab that she um, it, it, that is a therapy dog. So she takes her to different hospitals and stuff oh. in Virginia. I tried to train my dog, Sophie, when she was a puppy. Uh-huh. And we were doing really well. I was working with the trainer, did everything. And then we, she saw an IV pole and that was the end of it all. <laughs> you know, she <laughs> what is that? She didn't just do what is that. She went, betch. <laughs> <Crazy>. <laughs> That's funny. That's how um, Nori, our other cat, responds to any new thing. I had one of those stress balls the other day yeah. and it was new. She hadn't seen it before. And all I did was show it to her and she was like, oh, I got to get the hell out of here. She <laughs> ran out of the room. <laughs> like it's a piece of foam. <laughs> um, whenever I started my very first nursing job, um, it was on this mixed unit that had and this is, it's, it was kind of a weird mix. So it had oncology, it had gynecological and neurological surgery patients. Ouch. And then- um, they, they have a lot of pain. They do. It was, so this very was a heavy sens- mix. That's a very sensitive area it of the is. body. Is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know that. Don't yeah. be coy. Don't touch my giner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or my pee-pee. That's right. But I told Ryan if his if his pee-pee is broken, I'm just going to tell him to pull the plug. <laughs> Don't try to save him. <laughs> anyway, so they had the um, the those patients. They also had one room for when moms lost a baby. Yeah. Um, so for grieving mothers. And then they had two rooms for hospice care specifically. Specifically. Oh, wow. So one nurse could be taking care of that whole different mix of patients. And um, it was my first nursing job ever. And I knew nothing about any of those things, you know. I and bet my, you learned. I did. But it, hospi- the hospice patients were um, the most scary for me. I mean, that whole unit was pretty scary, but the hospice was the most scary because I didn't know anything about hospice. And I saw people suffering and I didn't know what to do about it. You know, Mm. I was like, I don't even know what the next thing that might be better is. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm paging the doctor and I'm just describing and they're like, well, give them more of whatever this is, but I'm not doing a good job of describing and they're not seeing it. And I don't know, that was just awful. And now that um, I've been a nurse for some time and I feel like, oh, and the other thing about that was I just wasn't ready to accept people dying either. You know, when you're early on and I, I mean, I can't, you know, I I remember reading The Onion. I used to get The Onion back east, mm-hmm. which is a satirical it's totally paper. true newspaper. Yeah. Everything in it is 100% <laughs> and the, true. The headline was mortality rate reaches 100%. <laughs> and so, I mean, let's we're all going to die at some point and I don't want to die today or tomorrow, please. Uh, but it's coming one day and you can't run from it. So I think really the lesson is having gratitude, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's normal to be scary around death. 
because it's something we grapple with. And when you're just starting your career, it's like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. That uh, I'm supposed to be taking care of them. Right, like that's not why I'm here. I'm here to help right. people live better and longer. And yeah, that was just the I th- worst. I think there's a lot of moral distress. And I used to get really pissy about the oncologists or whoever, not mm-hmm. just oncologists, about why are you offering this patient this? But then you think about wait, why are you offering them chemo when they're not going to get better? Oh, I and see. I, I think we have to remember, we all went into this to fix people. I don't think anybody went to nursing school or medical school at the outset to, you know, let people die. So it feels like a failure. And I think there is a lot of moral distress and feeling bad that you haven't been able to provide what you think you needed to provide. For sure. And I think most people will tell you, most patients or families, the ones I've worked with, don't view you that way. They look for compassion and dialogue. And, and you don't need to go into palliative care to use that skill set. You know, we teach primary care doctors and specialists, all nursing. Everybody that's in a medical field should be able to have the basic skill sets for your daily work because you work with sick patients and these issues come up all the time about why me, like a total existential crisis. What did I do? Mm-hmm. Did I eat too much candy Was I was a kid? <laughs> was I, I stole too something? Happy? I was too happy and I wasn't grateful enough. Or, there you go. Yeah. That's why you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I think... You talk about you're not ready for palliative care yet, but it's something we all need to keep an eye on whether we do it as a career or not. That's a really good point. I wonder, I'm sure there are um, uh, continuing education courses people could take on that too, just so that you can integrate it into your practice, whatever your practice is. Yeah, a friend of mine um, named Betty Farrell, she's very well known across the country. She's a nurse and she developed the LNEC curriculum, which is N. I don't know what it stands for. It's end of life nursing. That's uh, Spanish for the neck. <laughs> Wait, I thought that was cuerpo or something. <laughs> no? El neck. Oh, el no. oh, oh. Um, But she has a great, it's E-L-N-E-C. And if you go online and look, it's for ICU nurses. It's for oncology. They have, it's a great curriculum and everybody loves this class. Plus, they feed you really well. Um, so it's, oh, it's a, great, a class you have to go to. You yeah, can't they might online. have some online stuff too, but there's a lot of education for nurses. Um, and I just think it kind of gets you through with really challenging patients about your own stress about it, your own perceptions, and how do you deal with tough situations? Because there's many of them. Sometimes it's hard not to personalize. My niece was really upset today about a guy that had coded seven times. And so some of the rocket scientists at this very large academic center uh, did the cooling protocol. Mm -hmm. After an MI, after a a heart attack? He had a cardiac arrest. Uh And he got return of spontaneous circulation, but then he coded a few more times. And then she had to run the circuit with CRRT and do all this crazy stuff. And she left and he coded again. And then she's like beating herself up about the fact that he coded. But I was like, wait, that was like the seventh time. 
maybe he's trying to die. <laughs> right. And we're not letting he's him. He's telling you something. He's, yes, go to the light. <laughs> so I think she's a young nurse in her career and she feels like she's going through everything. Well, did I do this right? Did I do that right? I'm like, he's trying to die. You can't stop it sometimes. We are so medical, you know, everything's technology and... No, people still die. Unfortunately, but also fortunately. Yeah. I don't want to live forever. I yeah, don't want to see Yeah, look at my mother-in-law is like a hundred and something years old. She doesn't know who we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sad. I don't want to be like that. That is sad. Um, can I tell you a secret? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a secret anymore if I say it out loud. But anyway, um, so Ryan and I have talked about what will we do if we get to that point where if one of us has dementia and we're, we just become a burden on the other one or what if one of us is suffering so much but we wouldn't qualify for um, you know, ending our lives electively, um, which you can do in the state of California now, but it's really strict. It's hard to be able to do that. Anyway, so we yeah, have a plan. Yeah, they don't let dementia do it, people do it because no, you have to don't. be able to consent mm-hmm. and you have to be able to swallow the medication. So mm-hmm. if you have ALS, great. Because you can't Sorry. swallow it. So you can't do that. So what are you going to do? Um, we're going to inject each other with insulin and morphine, which I'm going to start hoarding a year before I retire. There you go. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't think I have good luck with suicide. <laughs> oh no, it's not going to be suicide. We're going to kill each other. It's self-assisted. <laughs> I don't know if it would work. I would be, be one of those assisted. I, I think felt, that's called murder. <laughs> when I was in medical school, I was so sad. I had I was in Baltimore and we did a rotation at Shock Trauma. Mm-hmm. And this poor old man, he was trying to shoot himself cuz his wife died and he missed and took off part of his face. <gasps> So now you got this depressed 90-year-old man with Parkinson's missing part of his face. Whoa, he was 90 when he did this? Yes. Oh, I'm like, oh, man. you got to have a good plan. Oh, no. With Parkinson's, so it's like, can you even hold the gun steady in the right place? Obviously, no. I, oh, I'm thinking I'm just going to stop eating, which for me would be a problem. Stop eating? What? What? That's the If way I to get kill to yourself. that point, <laughs> if you don't eat for a couple weeks... That's a long time to go without food. You think you could do that? No. That would take so much. <laughs> I, I can't even what. make it through a day Just of Weight Watchers right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely not the way I would no, choose to maybe go. Maybe that was a bad one. I got to <laughs> rethink this proposition. <laughs> Just, you know, we need to stay in contact. I'm like, I'll help you out. <laughs> I'm going to be the, the angel of death. Okay. <laughs> like that Ms. nurse who work in. <laughs> yeah, right. Um wow. Okay. Well, I think this has been really informative. I'm glad we talked about this. It's and- kind of sick. But mm-hmm. we love that. <laughs> we're in medicine. We need That's to have why some we're relief. In this field. <laughs> if you can't laugh, you're gonna cry. Laughing so much better. Oh my god, that's so true. Back to that first year. Sorry for a second on that unit. It was so sad. Also, just the the regular oncology patients. We had young guys with um, 
leukemia. We had older people with lung cancer. That was the first time I saw someone die of lung cancer. That was horrific. He basically kept coming back in for uh, for thoracentesis. That's you know when they drain fluid out of your lungs for people who don't know. Um, and then eventually just got a chest tube. And then it was just like he. It was like watching someone drown. Like he. It was horrible. Anyway, I locked myself in the supply closet almost every day that I worked there to cry. It was horrible. It is. <laughs> and I was out and about like in the world just doing something for fun. And somebody who'd never met me before, um, we were out at a restaurant or a club or something and they said, are you okay? You just seem really intense. And it was just like, I was going through a traumatic time in my life from just seeing all this like suffering and, and yeah. death, you know? I had that experience when I was a resident in the... Uh, NICU at Lenox Hill. Uh, I felt, I realized I could not be a neonatologist. Oh, no way. So I, but why? I cried because a lot. Because you saw a lot of, of the S- death or suffering. Of- not death, more suffering. And I know that a lot of the babies ended up doing okay. Mm-hmm. But it's hard when you see this vulnerable being, whether it be 99 or nine hours old, to see the suffering. Yeah, I can imagine. I think it's all hard. No one wants, that's, I think. I, I don't have, even want to see babies that are pretty much healthy, but like need a thing or two in the hospital. Ugh. I don't oh, even want to see be babies, one of those. first of all. You're going to be, I worked <laughs> but, in the ER for way too long. <laughs> Everybody brings their kid in. I'm like, I could tell you the magical answer for everybody out there with a the kid with a fever. What is it? It's a magic. It's called a popsicle. <laughs> I have cured more children in the ER with popsicles. <laughs> Tylenol on a popsicle. Oh, he's been crying. He won't eat. He's got a fever. Give him some Tylenol on a popsicle. Oh, you're so good. Um, Not really. <laughs> that sounds great. I can, you know, I'll use that intervention. Just popsicles even are if everything. I don't have a fever. Yeah. I'm just grumpy. Use a popsicle. popsicle. Popsicles are everything. Mm-hmm. Agreed. If you have a, you know, an ankle that's swollen, you can put a popsicle on it. That's right. Um, so let's do a medical word of the week. So I had one last week and I forgot to read it because we got so engrossed in our have discussion of... Barbarigmi. Huh? Have you done Barbar- Oh, I've already done that one. That's so funny you I use that word. Barbarigmi. She's... <laughs> I love Barbarigmi too. I had some on the... I have it, <laughs> it was every recorded day. on I had a dream my Pilates class. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have one for you. This is something that came up in the office recently and I was like, that's not a word. Okay. Meatotomy. A neo Meatotomy. Oh, when you cut part of the heart muscle. Mm-mm. Holy cow. You, you cut something. Myocardium. It's spelled like meatotomy. Oh, I don't even know what that is, but it's scary. Is <laughs> if you go to a steakhouse and have dinner, you say, I want you to do a meatotomy and cut it in half. So Could you I can cut share my it? steak for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's a, a type of modification done to the penis. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> meatotomy. Chop your penis off, chop your meat off. Um, <laughs> the underside of the glands is split. So sometimes they can do that to alleviate meatal stenosis or urethral stricture. So basically Ooh. if the, the tip of the penis is like, you know, 
too tight, like maybe like it has a scar tissue or, or yeah, some kind of fibrosis. Fi- yeah, like when you get the head stuck. <laughs> we, Wait, what? <laughs> never mind. There's something where the foreskin can get stuck over the glands and they have to cut it. Maybe that's what it is. It's creepy. Yeah, sound. no, I think that's what it is. Yeah. I like my explanation better. Okay. Can you meatotomy my sirloin so I can share it with my husband? <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, that's fun. That's a good word. I don't yeah. know how I'll ever use it though. You know what? I sent it to um, my siblings and I have this group text message and I sent it to my brother and he guessed it immediately. A little sensitive. He was like, he? it has meat right in the word. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think he's been doing some reading. <laughs> He's like, things I don't want. He's just up at night looking on the internet, things that are giving him anxiety. <laughs> I don't blame him. I don't want my penis cut. What would that no. sound like? Meatotomy. Nope. <laughs> Except he was probably thinking meatotomy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on the wine before we go? We didn't really talk about this too much. It's smooth. It is. I like it. I'm not getting the histamine flush I can get. Oh, get all, it's good. The histamine flesh, huh? I'm one of those I don't pe- think that's what you're having. Ugh. I think it's from something else. You should listen to episode 15. Okay. We talk about histamines and wine. Um, yeah, at first I wasn't like really delish. a huge fan because I felt like it was kind of um, like one note, like it was kind of simple. But now that it's been sitting a while, that's the thing with wine. So great because it changes. Now that it's sitting for a while, I get a little more of the spice on the finish and the chocolate and like the fruitiness up front. And Man, this is really Sonoma County. I know. <laughs> you are fancy. <laughs> we so fancy. You fancy. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It was fun. I'm glad you could do it before you left. Oh, one other thing I want to ask about before you leave. You can call me in LA if you need other appearances. Okay. We can get you on the phone or you can just come visit. That's true. We're going to have an extra bedroom in our new place, two of them, so you could stay Um, with us. Yes, living in paradise. (laughs) So I heard that uh, your husband has a jacket that he had from the Michael Jackson Thriller Tour. What? Yeah. It's there. It's ugly. <laughs> uh, I don't care if it's disgusting. He got to go on a up. Michael Jackson I'll tour. I'll send you a picture. He worked with Michael Jackson. That's crazy. Yeah, he worked with a lot of big, big folks. But Michael Jackson, he's I know. like probably the biggest folk. Yeah, but I think, well, I probably will get, I don't think, is anybody you out there a music You can express your opinion. Brand? That's fine. Um, uh, he, he was with Michael a couple times. So not with him. This is really not coming out well. Um, he was with him <laughs> around when he had Bubbles the Chimp period. Oh, when he, got he went in to trouble. the zoo with Michael? He went to Venezuela oh. and got left with all the equipment there. Because Michael had to fly lame. home and my husband had a bunch of gangsters and he had to get all the equipment home. You know, I think I remember him saying something about this. Yeah. Go on. And then his company was doing three-dimensional video technology and he called me because there's so much money involved. And he goes, is Michael Jackson in your ER at Cedar sinai And I was like, why are you asking? I could never answer that. Well, because it's on the news that he died. And he's like, Damn it. And I'm like, Val. <laughs> he was at UCLA. <laughs> it's a twisted world in that business. Oh, boy. So, wait, that was after, right after that tour? 
No, he, it's a big delay when he oh, died. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Okay. But he is a very talented guy. I personally fell in love with Michael when I was a kid, when he was with the Jackson 5. I fell in love with Michael when I was a kid too, and my dad would play, I'm talking to the man in, in the, the mirror. mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Never well, let you go, girl. <laughs> There's so many good ones. Well, thanks for listening to everybody. Um, you can write into us, tell us your stories about death and dying, hospice care, palliative care, or whatever you feel like that has to do with your body or anybody's body at wwnurses at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at whiningwnurses. Cheers. Ciao, Bellas. <laughs>